Well, church, one more time, and this will be the last time, I'm going to invite you to open up your Bible to the Gospels, and we're going to look at one of the parables of Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, there are 24 of them. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's another 23. There's some 46 unique parables of Jesus in total recorded in Scripture. Some of them are brief, only a line or two, but all of them have punch. They have impact to them. Um, a reminder, a couple of things about parables just before we end this season and move into our summer focus on the songs of Jesus, but, but a few things that, that were absolutely unique about parables in the world. One, they were rooted in real-life situations. This is, not, this is not theoretical classroom learning. These are conversations that started in the bump and grind of daily life as Jesus tossed out these memorable stories in order to drive home the principles of the kingdom of God. In fact, the word parable itself means to throw alongside. He threw out these stories, and the stories themselves have become as memorable, probably more memorable than the teaching. And that's the power of story. The one we're going to look at today is in Luke chapter 17. This is the tenth of the parables that we have looked at. And uh, let's be honest as we read this one together. This one is kind of stark. This is in-your-face kind of teaching. And the story, again, is rooted in a conversation he's having with his disciples about what it means to be a follower. So Luke 17, beginning at the first verse, Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. I told you it was stark. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and then if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times they come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. And so the apostles said to the Lord, as you and I would as well, increase our faith. And he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. And here's the parable. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat. Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. And after that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to? So also you, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. I think we better pray. Lord, this is a hard one. Some of your parables are hard to understand. Some we can understand, but they're, they're hard to apply. Maybe this one is both. So we need you here, Lord. Uh, we want to trust you in this that there is always something of deep consequence for us when we open up the pages of your word. Help us to find it, to receive it, to apply it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Not an easy one. In fact, this wasn't even the parable I was going to be working with today. If you do that sort of looking ahead a week and pre-read, you realize I changed at the last minute. And I changed from one that was even harder. But uh, I changed because I wanted to end on a note that propels us forward into the next season of life for us as a church. And um, in every season, we aspire to be faithful in our obedience. We want to be ambassadors for who Jesus is. We want to be good representatives and citizens of that reality that he called the kingdom of God. And we want to be able to model and epitomize the kind of generosity and servant lifestyle that Jesus was so adamant would be the hallmark of his kingdom. And underneath the the starkness both of this episode in the life of Jesus and the parable, I think those are the questions that are being raised. To start with, he talks a little bit about the Christian lifestyle. He says that there's something for his disciples to live out of. In fact, he says there's two things. He says, first, you're not to give offense. And secondly, he says, you're not to take offense. He says it's really easy in the world to give offense, to lead other people to misstep. And there's lots of ways in which we do that. And Christians have done that. We do it most often through our inconsistency. Maybe the best way of coming at that is is by understanding one of the cherished values of this generation. And that's the value of privacy. I mean, would you agree that, that privacy is receiving more attention, certainly to privacy, especially in places like the GTA. It's critical to modern citizenship, we're being told. We don't like being watched. We don't want people to notice. We prefer to be anonymous. That's why this sanctuary fills up every week the way it fills up. The further back you are, the more removed you are, the easier it is to be anonymous. You don't know, do you, Tayo, whether I spit when I talk? Yeah. Christianity challenges at some level the notion of privacy, and it does it in this way. Jesus says, when you become a follower of mine, it matters what people see. And you're meant to be noticed. Not unconscious and cultivating and manipulating those things, but you are an example. And people are going to notice. And if if you are a professing Christian and often harsh or unapproachable or, or gossipy or sometimes you make promises you don't keep. In other words, if you live inconsistently with the message that you hold on to, people are going to notice. And they will notice and they're going to say, if that's what Christianity is about, I just don't see the appeal because I don't see the power in it. I don't see that it unleashes in me anything different than what's in everybody else. As a follower of Jesus, we need to be able to say, and it's hard to say in this individuality-driven, privacy-oriented culture, it's hard to say, you are not your own anymore. You're his. And it means you don't have the same right to things like privacy that you might have thought that you did. So this is the first thing Jesus drives at. You're not to give offense to other people. Live your life publicly so that they see and don't trip them up with your example. But then secondly, he says, I don't want you to take offense either. Here he's talking about somebody who wrongs you. I know that never happens, right? (laughs) They wrong you. 
uh, and maybe you challenge them, but they come back looking forgiveness and, and you are to offer forgiveness. That's okay. But what if it happens again and again and again and again, all in the same day? He says, no matter how often a person asks for forgiveness, you need to offer it. Why? I want my people to be characterized by this. No bitterness, no rancor, no lingering anger. I don't want those to be the words that describe my people. Compassion, grace, forgiveness. There's so many passages about this in the Bible. We're we're not really going to get into them, and we're not going to suggest that the driving point here is that we become doormats for the world to step all over. But, But don't miss this point. When you become a Christian, you're no longer your own, which means you don't have that right to hold on to your grudges, to say, it's my life, it's my own business. Who cares what other people think when they see it? If they're offended, that's their problem. You've heard that before, right? Such a great modern phrase. That's your problem. What a worldview. The point is that attitude changes. And when, when Jesus makes both those points, you're not to give a cry out saying, increase our faith, right? I would too. Increase our faith. It's really kind of a way initially of deflecting responsibility. Lord, it would be wonderful to live like that. We couldn't possibly do it. We're not capable. We don't have that kind of strength in us. Increase our faith because we can't live that way. And notice the way Jesus responds. It's not a matter of faith. Not, not at least the way you're understanding faith. Not faith as a feeling. Not faith is some kind of set of stellar abilities. If you exercise the simple faith that you have right now, even if it's only the size of a mustard seed, if you just act on what you already know and exercise that faith, you could do the things I'm asking of you. And then he's about to shift into the parable. The parable is really a story about what it means to be a Christian. And we know that Being a Christ follower means many things, right? It means to be a child of God. It it means to be an heir to this wonderful emerging reality, the kingdom of God. It means to be a recipient of grace. But here's what Jesus brings into kind of a clear, undiluted focus in this parable. A Christian is a servant. A Christ follower serves. A Christian is no longer their own. These things, Jesus says to them, are no longer optional now. You can't say, well, if I happen to be that kind of person, I guess I could live that way. Jesus says, no, it doesn't matter what kind of person you are, your personality type, your giftedness, you're mine. This is how you live. Now, to be clear, being a Christian is more than just being a servant, but it's never less. And the story Jesus tells, I mean, this is, again, this is just cold water in the face. But as long as you realize that when Jesus tells a parable, one like this, he's not trying to tell us everything all at once about what it means to be a follower of Christ. But he is saying something that is definitely irreducibly true of being a Christian. To be a Christian means to be a servant. It means duty. There are obligations regardless of whatever feelings and regardless of whatever set of consequences. I'm a child of the 60s. Anybody else here born in the 1960s? Okay. Sheldon, 1960s? 
course you are. Which means, you know, I'm a recipient of the massive countercultural movement that began in the 60s. And arguably, it was even more pronounced south of the border than it was here, but it trickled up north. And the one thing that collapsed most dramatically in the 1960s was a sense of duty. And everything that would compel duty came under suspicion. All authority was questioned and rejected. We're just free. Freedom becomes the value. In societies, at least in the West over the past 30 years, has been enshrining and preserving freedom. And the notion of duty began to fade away. That there are things that we do because they need to be done. They're right and they're true and they're beautiful. And we are compelled to do it. Let's, let's break it down a little bit. Let's look at the parable, and we're going to do it by uh, examining these three sort of statements. If you look in the back of your order of service, you'll see these three descriptive statements about what it means to be a servant, what it means to to act out of that sense of godly-breathed duty in our lives. Here's the first. A servant is somebody who has settled in their minds and in their heart this idea that God doesn't owe them anything. Let's go to the story. The story is about a farmer. Small farm on the farm, he has one farm hand. That farm hand is a servant. Depending on the translation that you're looking at, it might say servant, it might say slave. Same word. Same word. The point is, it's not just an employee, it's not just a paycheck player in the ancient world. This farm hand goes out, works all day. Comes back home again, does the farmer say, hey, put your feet up. Can I get you anything? Maybe an iced tea or something? No. The farmer says, there's more work to do. Prepare my supper. And then when it's all done, it's not that the servant is expecting anything from the master. Instead, the servant says, I was just doing my duty. I'm not worthy of anything more. I have done my duty. Verse 10. You know why it happens? Because they're not an employee. They're a servant or a slave. And this is the part where we get really uncomfortable in our chairs, as well we should. We read the Bible and we read the word slave, we're always going to read it through the lens, through the grid of the horrific experience of, of American slavery. The slavery that we know about in America, in the Americas, that it was one in which the master owned the person of the slave. They had complete power over the person. They could do whatever they wanted, and often what they did was horrific. That's not what's being talked about here. And please don't hear me as trying to defend slavery in, in, in any variety, but, but to, in, in, to enter into the biblical worldview need to understand that slavery was not the American horrific, scandalous experience. It had to do with what was called indentured servitude. A servant or a slave in that society was someone who had fallen into debt. And in those days, there was no bankruptcy provision. You know, in bankruptcy, the government legally dissolves all of your debts. They declare them gone. Pretty convenient, really. Back then, if you accumulated debt as an individual or family and the debt was more than you could pay, you were obligated to go into service for the one who had loaned you the money. 
That's why money lending in the Bible is always vilified. It was a different world. And if you fell in the trap of not being able to pay off your debt, you had two options. One, you went to work in indentured servitude. And your master owned your labor. The other, you went to prison. And a creditor couldn't just do anything they wanted with you. They didn't own your person. They didn't own you. But they owned your labor. Which meant you couldn't go to work somewhere else. And again, I'm not trying to say this is a good thing. There are all kinds of disadvantages to this. You couldn't move. You couldn't sell out your services to a higher off the debt. But realize in that society, the alternative was far worse. The alternative was prison. And the one who owned a debt wasn't compelled to take a person into service. They could just as easily dismiss them. The Bible talks about this. Matthew 18, if you want to flip over and look at it. They could just have you thrown into prison. I know I'm I'm belaboring a point, and it's an uncomfortable one. But it's important to understand the image that's here if you're really going to understand the parable. The servant owes. They weren't whisked away into slavery as an act of malice and cruelty. They owe. And they have no illusions that the one to whom they owe their labor owes them anything back. Because the alternative was prison. I know this seems a little bit strange, right? But... But a Christian, uh, I don't think we fully understood or grasped Christianity until we've grasped this, intellectually, emotionally. A Christian is clear of this one thing. God owes us nothing. God owes us nothing. That sounds stark. We may owe God everything. God owes us nothing. Look at the scriptures around this. Acts 17, 28. In him you live and move and you have your being. It all comes from him, but he owes you nothing. Colossians 1.17, in Christ, all things hold together. Without him, it all flies apart, but even still, he owes you nothing. Incidentally, any McMaster grads? What? There's one. Did you know that's the university motto? In Christ, all things hold together. A Christian is somebody who understands that, who's learned that. But how many of you, let's be honest, how many of you have found yourself angry at God because your life is not going the way that you think it ought to? Maybe I'm not as much of a victim as I think. Because there's this assumption, it's underneath all of the anger. The assumption, if you take it away, the anger collapses and you're no longer in its grip. Do you know what the assumption is? You assume that God owes you. Would you give me the evidence for that? Where's the evidence that God owes you? In in that space that was occupying, if you place a servant attitude, you wouldn't be nearly as angry as you are because a servant is someone who understands that their master owes them nothing. Let's build on that, though. Here's the second point. A servant has within them a servant's spirit, an obedient spirit. In other words, a servant obeys, they obey without qualification, without condition. It says it right there. Chapter 17, verse 10. So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, you should say, hey, we just did it because we're servants. We've only done our duty. 
You sense the spirit at work there? It means you obey when you understand and when it's for your own benefit. But it also means you obey when it's not clear and it's not for your own benefit. Because if you only obey when it's going to be good for you and it pays off for you, you know what? That's not obedience at all. That's just agreement. I'm going to agree with you about this one, Lord. But maybe that next one coming along, not so sure. If there are conditions to your obedience, it's not obedience. There's all kinds of images for this. I think one of the most beautiful ones, a little book that came out years ago called My Heart, Christ's Home. An example of this where Jesus is walking around metaphorically in the household of your life. But if you say to him, Lord, this is... And what you're really saying is that it's not his house, it's yours. And if you bring forth a whole bunch of conditions, I'm not obeying you out here, I'm not obeying you in that room, there's not really been a relinquishment of will. You're not a servant. God is not your master, he's just a consultant. And you choose where and when to consult him. Lord, I'd be very happy to take your advice about this part of my life. I'll think about it. But over here, off limits. The Bible says all kinds of things about the way that we are to live. All things that would press us in the area of obedience. Some of them are going to make sense to you. Some of them won't. Bible says you should forgive people when they wrong you. Sometimes that's going to make sense. Sometimes that's going to feel almost impossible. Bible says that there are boundaries around your sexual nature and you should exercise sexual self-control. But that flies in the face of the world. And the world is it's being paraded in Toronto today. The Bible says you should be generous in giving your support to the Lord's work and charitable causes. And yet there's something that sometimes rubs the wrong way inside. The Bible says you should be baptized. I mean, that seems like a small thing, but for how many of us is that a big thing? Why do I need to do that? It says all kinds of things. And and if we respond, Lord, I will obey when it makes sense. I'll obey when it pays off. Or, Lord, I just don't feel strong enough. I don't have it in me to do that. The strength comes in the doing. You don't say, God, get my life together. Do everything for me. Make me strong. And then I'll be your servant. If you're not a servant, you're just agreeing with God. You're not obeying him. A servant is someone who's settled that. Oh, to you, I owe you my duty, and I'm happy to do it. There are so many people, I think this is the the theme of Christianity in the more modern world, whose allegiance to Christianity is because they, they enjoy the love and the joy part of it. But when it comes to the servanthood part, they freeze up. It's why the church, good churches, beautiful, healthy, strong churches, this one, for example, are a few people to do the things that are so critically important to us. Servanthood is so much harder than celebration. And yet it's no less important. Forbes magazine a few years ago devoted a whole issue to this question. Why is it that we're so unhappy? I don't know how well that issue sold, but. Interesting article, though. In the magazine, they started with a premise. It was a difficult premise, but here it is. Check me on this. Their premise was that we are more unhappy than our ancestors. 
I don't know whether you'd agree with that or not. Do you agree? That was their premise. An objective approval of history, and they went through, they, they read out the diaries, the journals, the records, showed that people complain far more today, are far more unhappy today than our ancestors were. And yet, at the same time, we are far better off, at least materially, than they ever were. The question the article was asking was, why? Why is it that we, being better off than any other generation, are less happy than any society in history? It's, it's as simple as this. We are the first secular society in the history of the world. And secularism says all that we have is time and space. All that we have is this life. We can't know about anything else. This is the first society that has ever believed that there was only one world. Every other society in history has always believed, because of religion or philosophy, that there were at least two worlds. There was this world, but then there was something else. And at some level, they understood that this life, this world is short. And it's often difficult. It's broken and it's, it's brutish. But there was something else. Something that was a place of beauty and delight. And therefore, they would say that our job in this world isn't just to be happy. Our job was to live this world in light of the values of the next one. We're the first society in history that says there's only one world. And so if I'm going to be really happy, it's got to be here. It's got to be now because I only get to go around once. As a result, let me let me just suggest this to you. If you expect that this world will give you nothing but happiness, you will be utterly disappointed. You know that. You'll be more unhappy than any of your ancestors because you're asking this world To give you something it cannot give. But what if instead of being mad at life for being what it is, you just let this world be this world? A Christ follower, a Christian servant, is somebody who's figured that out. They're no longer filled with bitterness and self-pity and saying, why doesn't the world just give me what I want? For the Christian servant, this world always gives you what you want because what you want is a place to serve. There's a story that follows immediately after this parable. I don't know if you still have your Bibles open. Glance ahead. Do you see what happens next? It's worth reading. In fact, I actually think it's critical to understand the parable to see what happens next. The story of ten lepers. Ten lepers who all get healed of that horrific disease. But when the moment of gratitude comes, only one comes back. One of the ten lepers comes back, throws himself down on the ground, praises God, thanks Jesus. When he throws himself down on the ground, you know what that is, right? It's not just worship. That's the posture of obedience. That's the stance of servanthood. You throw yourself on the ground, you're saying, I'm yours. You're the master now. My life is yours to command. But notice for this one who was healed, whose life was changed, it's a service that's based in love and in gratitude, not in fear, not in resentment, not in obligation. You see, the the death that this leper has turns him into to a servant whose service is rooted in love. Why? Because 
Life was changed dramatically, cleansed. Leprosy is so often used by Jesus as an example, as, a, as an illustration for salvation. Why? Because when you cleanse the leper, you didn't just cleanse their disease. You made them right in the world again. You made them right legally and socially. You changed their position. They were, they were restored to a community. Their standing in society was, was restored. You relieved their pain and physical suffering, but you also did something for their soul. And look what it says in verses 15 and 16. This man came back praising God in a loud voice, threw himself down at Jesus' feet. There was an intensity. There was an eagerness to the servant life of this man. Joy and gratitude because he knows that God has changed him forever. How about us? If you know that God has changed your eternal position socially, physically, legally, soul deep, why are we so desperate to find people to serve? You sang it already this morning. I don't know whether you realized that as the words were coming in, come thou font, O to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. That's the cry of a servant. One of the other great hymn writers, a man who knew everything about slavery, John Newton, a slave trader himself, whose life was eternally transformed legally, socially, physically, spiritually, transformed by the grace of God. He wrote it this way. He said, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Our pleasure and our duty, at odds before, are now joined to part no more. Can you bear one more hymn lyric? And then we'll close. Beautiful hymn. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Friends, we are more than servants, a lot more. But we're never less. The kingdom of God should never go wanting for services. The church should never have to be on its hands and knees begging for volunteers. Why? Because we have been saved by the kingdom for the kingdom and we know our true allegiance. I am not my own. I belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Command me, Lord. Use me as you will. Oh, to grace how great a debtor I'm constrained to be. Let me pray for us all. Jesus, your word stirs us. It agitates us. It prompts us. 
It compels us. And sometimes it's painful to hear. But it's beautiful when the hearing brings new life, new understanding, new energy. I pray that there would be wave after wave of replenishing new understanding of your spirit, followed by wave after wave of responsive new engagement in service. As God, your people are unleashed and released for this generation. Let it come, Lord. Let it come. Amen.